0: Hello again, and welcome back to episode four of the Paul Sock podcast. My name is Jerome Devitt, and today we'll be taking a deep dive to investigate one of Europe's most important, but least known and least understood political institutions, the Council of Europe. This episode is the first of three linked episodes, with our next episode scheduled to be an exploration of the European Union itself, followed by an examination of Brexit, or at least what we know thus far about Brexit. But if you think about it, we can't really begin to get our heads around why the UK might want to leave the EU without first having some sense of how the EU operates. To help us get our heads around the Council of Europe, I'll be joined a little later by Samantha O'Brien O'Reilly, who is the Deputy to Ireland's Permanent Representative at the Council of Europe and a former UN Youth Delegate for Ireland, She joined me on the phone from Strasbourg, where the Council of Europe is based, and where she and her fellow diplomats work. This is important for two reasons. Firstly, you should be amazed that I actually managed to work out the technology to record a phone call and upload it to the podcast. And secondly, if there are a few blips in the audio quality, you'll forgive a few little tech bumps. Before we do that, however, just a few quick pieces of podcasting housekeeping. First of all, I'd like to alert you all to the final phase of our logo competition. If you want to vote on one of the four designs that have been shortlisted, then go to the website www.polsockpodcast.com and click on the News tab. There you'll find a link to the voting page. I'll leave the poll running until the midterm break at least, so there's plenty of time to vote. Remember, the more votes we get in, in other words, the bigger our sample size, the more reflective our final poll results will be compared to what you want. Please also do check out the episode notes for this episode, episode 4, on the website for additional resources, worksheets, links, videos, study suggestions and activities that I hope will help you to get your head around some of the elements of this part of the course that are perhaps somewhat denser than the other topics we'll be covering. But listen, if you take nothing away from today's episode other than the fact that the Council of Europe and the European Union are two different organisations, then we'll have achieved at least something. The best way to remember the difference between the two is that the two organisations have different roles to fulfil, but share the same values. Now, I'm quoting here from the Council of Europe's own website where they explain that, quote, The Council of Europe and the European Union share the same fundamental values human rights, democracy, and the rule of law but are separate entities or separate organisations which perform different yet complementary roles. By the end of the episode, I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that if Europe only got the hang of naming things a bit better, then the whole system might be a bit more accessible to its citizens, its students, and I'd be forced to add, its teachers. So I started off by asking Samantha what exactly the Council of Europe is and more importantly, why should you, the students, even care about it?
1: The Council of Europe is an international organisation whose stated aim is to uphold human rights, democracy and the rule of law in Europe. The very first thing to know about it is that it's not the European Union and it's not part of the European Union. Uh, And people get quite confused about this, Uh, understandably so I think, because the European Union has the Council of the European Union, But that is completely separate to what we are, which is the Council of Europe. But just to make things more confusing, both institutions have the same flag. The Council of Europe is based in Strasbourg, where the European Parliament also sits uh, one week of the month. So it is very easy for people to get confused between the two. But the Council of Europe's specific competencies of human rights, rule of law and democracy also apply to a much broader membership base than the EU does. The Council of Europe has 47 members, as opposed to the European Union's 28. Uh, We have all the the members of the European Union and also other countries like Russia, Turkey, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Iceland, Norway, uh, and various others. Um, And although the EU, which was originally set up, was part of the European community of coal and steel with the aim of economic interdependence, its competences have extended over the years, so that it does also have some work in the area of human rights to the Fundamental Rights Agency, which is headed by an Irishman, Michael O'Flaherty. The Council of Europe is really the primary human rights organisation in Europe for the protection of human rights. It was set up by 10 countries after World War II to ensure that the horrific atrocities that occurred in the continent of Europe would never again happen. Ireland was a founding member uh, in, in 1949, which is really something remarkable and that as Irish people we should be very proud of, that we were one of the first countries to set up this organization and have a very visionistic view of what human rights could become and what fundamental freedoms for citizens all across Europe could be. And for Ireland as a you know recently independent state, it was a really good way for us to exercise our foreign policy because we were a member of the League of Nations in the 1930s before forerunner we to the UN, but we didn't actually join the UN properly until uh, 1955. So in 1949, to be able to be on the international stage and to be a founding member of this organization is really quite remarkable. Uh, As said, there are the 47 member states. There are also five observer states, uh, Canada, Mexico, Japan, the United States, and the Holy See. And the most famous component of the Council of Europe, which most people have heard of, is the European Court of Human Rights, which uh, supervises the implementation of the European Convention on Human Rights.
0: So I continued by asking Samantha about the structure of the Council of Europe and how its representatives are chosen.
1: Yeah, so there's um, there's two main statutory bodies of the Council of Europe. There's the Committee of Ministers and there's the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. So the Committee of Ministers, in theory, is made up of the Ministers of Foreign Affairs of the 47 member states. Uh, but obviously, the Minister's Foreign Affairs have so much on that they can't come to Strasbourg once a week to meet to discuss the various human rights issues across Europe. So it ends up being the committee of the Minister's deputies. And the Minister's deputies are ambassadors that are appointed by their states to represent um, their state and their state's position in this body. So that's the permanent representative, who is represented, Ireland is represented by Ambassador Keith McBain, who is a creative command from the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and then his team is made up uh, of uh, deputies who are mostly diplomats in the Department of Foreign Affairs, and given the legal nature of a lot of the work we do, also includes officials in the Department of Justice in Ireland. Uh, these diplomats are hired in the normal way to the public appointment service, and the Council of Europe and Strasbourg, and the representation here is one of the places that you can be posted to. Then the second statutory body is the Parliamentary Assembly, um, and the Irish representatives there are politicians or senators or TDs, they are chosen by the Irish Parliament uh, and sent over there in a delegation of four permanent members and four substitute members, and they come once every quarter.
0: And they roughly parallel the, the make-up of the Doyle, and the competition of the government at the time, is that
1: right? Yeah, give or take. I mean, it's something that the Eroptus, um works out for itself, who's that to send over, but yeah, there's normally representatives from each major political party and also from independents as well.
0: Now, we're about to hit a bit of a speed bump here when we think about the following acronym, the ECHR. If you weren't confused already, you will be now because the letters ECHR can mean two separate things, but they're interrelated. Firstly, they can refer to the European Convention on Human Rights, the international treaty signed in London in 1950 that came into force in 1953, so its 65th birthday is coming up fast. The convention's main job was to protect human rights and political freedoms in Europe, and we'll hear more about them in a moment from Samantha. The second meaning of these letters, ECHR, is the European Court of Human Rights, established in 1959. It's the body charged with interpreting the convention and giving down judgments. The court is made up of judges from all 47 states of the Council of Europe. The cases can take different forms though, but usually involve an individual petitioning or asking the court to deal with the situation when they feel that their fundamental human rights have been violated. Very occasionally, individual states can sue other member states, such as when Ireland sued the United Kingdom in 1978 over the treatment of prisoners during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. The court originally found that the treatment was, quote, inhumane and degrading, but stopped short of labelling it as torture, though this judgment was revisited as recently as 2014. If you're studying the module on Northern Ireland in the Leaving Cert History course, this might be something you'd want to look at in more detail. Before we head back to Samantha, it's worth noting that the European Court of Human Rights appeared on both the higher and ordinary level papers this year. It was question 1b on the ordinary level and 1f on the higher level. So this is practical advice as well.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the most important thing about the Convention is that it's legally binding on the government of the 47 member states that have signed up to it, And it's really quite a remarkable instrument, when you think of it. that over eight hundred and thirty million people across Europe have recourse to the European Court against their government if they believe their human rights have been infringed. So, you know, people from all the way from, you know, Valencia Island, off the coast of Ireland, to Vladivostok in Russia – Everyone has the right to be heard at the Strasbourg Court if they believe that their human rights have been infringed. And the rights that are covered are most of the ones people would think of when they think of human rights, the typical ones like the right to life, the right not to be tortured or subjected to inhumane or degrading treatment, the right to liberty, the right to freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, the right to a fair trial, the right to privacy, the right to property. Um, but the really... the, the mo- fundamental thing about the European Convention on Human Rights is that it recognises the role that national governments and parliaments and courts have in enforcing human rights. So if your human rights to, to life or to assembly or to a fair trial is infringed, the national courts and the national parliaments are the people that are, and bodies that are supposed to protect those rights in the first instance. And with why Strasbourg and the court here is very much a court of last resort when all other legal remedies have been exhausted. And that's one of the things that makes the European Convention so unique in terms of looking at the global instruments and global international agreements in the world. Because you can walk into the Irish court and you can seek to rely on a right that is set out in the European Convention on Human Rights. You don't have to go to Strasbourg. You don't have to go to this international organisation. It's the Irish court down the road that has the responsibility to ensure that your human rights are respected.
0: So on the off chance that any of the students listening feel that their human rights have been infringed, I asked Samantha to outline for a step-by-step how you would seek to redress those rights using the European Court of Human Rights.
1: Yes. Yeah, so if you are a citizen of Ireland or any other country and you feel that one of your human rights has been infringed, the first thing is to take a case against your government in your own court, in your own country. And then if that fails and you have lost the case, you have to go my system the whole way up to the Supreme Court, and you have to lose there before you can make an application for your case to be heard in Strasbourg. And if uh, you've exhausted all your internal remedies and the Strasbourg court decides to accept your complaint because it finds it admissible, and you know a large percentage of applications are rendered admissible for various reasons, the most common being that people come to Strasbourg and try to be heard here before they've really been heard at every level of their own court system. So you will have like a hearing in Strasbourg where you'll have your council and the government will be represented by its council, and a composition of the court. There are 47 judges, one from each member state, will decide upon your claim and decide if you have one of your human rights having been violated. And then uh, they will make it, they will deliver a judgment. Um, the most common compensation is in the form of damages, uh, also normally in terms of costs that the state will be uh, told they must give to you. And the court will normally make a fine the violation as well. They'll say that the state acting in such a way or such legislation that the state has enacted violates people's human rights. And normally member states will then take steps to ensure that this violation is lifted and that other people in the future are not also harmed in the same way. Um, And obviously, the court doesn't want to have repeat applications where people are constantly coming with the same complaint and the same human right being infringed. So it's really important that member states that take this initiative to take steps to ensure that the violation is is fixed. And one of the ways then that that happens is where four times a year, approximately, the Committee of Ministers' Deputies sits as the CMDH in its supervisory capacity for the implementation of the court's judgment. So There'll be a list of judgments that are up for review, and... Uh, the deputies will sit down and they will work out how exactly these have been implemented in the countries in question. So say, for example, if there is a decision against Ireland which said that legislation Ireland had enforced force um, is, is incorrect, is violating of human rights, Ireland would submit an action plan setting out, firstly, how they compensated the individual involved, how they paid them their money, how they paid them their money in time, and so on. And secondly, the steps they were taking to ensure that other people in the future... Are not harmed in the same way. So, be this that legislation was enacted, or legislation was repealed, or the system was changed in some way. It's time for Quote of the Day.
0: Now, in this week's Quote of the Day, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual and a little bit cheeky. I'm going to use a quote from our guest. At the start of 2017, Samantha gave a speech as one of the UN delegates for Ireland which posed the question, how can we improve youth participation in the implementation of the SDGs at the national level? In closing her speech, she implored the assembled legislators by saying, don't just build it for everyone, build it with everyone. By this I think she meant that young people need to have authorship and ownership in the policies that will have an impact on their lives and which will ultimately fall on them to implement. While in this context she was specifically referring to the Sustainable Development Goals, a topic that we will certainly be returning to at a later date, we could take this dictum, this statement, and apply it to so many walks of life. The reason I was so taken with this particular quote is because in so many ways it encapsulates or sums up my own personal for- philosophy around teaching politics and society and about how you, the students, need to be considered as central to the Polsock project and education more broadly for that matter. Another Sock teacher, Brendan O'Sullivan down in Gorey Community School, echoed this kind of sentiment recently when he explained to a group of new Polsock teachers that in fact there aren't 16 key thinkers on the course. There are 17. And in case you haven't figured it out it's you. You're the 17th. He said this because as so many of the Polsock teachers believe, if the students themselves don't engage in this process and learn to think for themselves then all will have been for nothing. Now Hopefully I've flattered my main guest a little bit and embarrassed my friend Brendan quite a lot and can consider this a good day's work all round. So now that we've got a bit of a better grasp on how the European Convention and European Court of Human Rights works, I asked Samantha would she outline some of the other duties and responsibilities of the Council of Europe.
1: The most common convention that the Council of Europe has created, that people have heard of, is the European Convention on Human Rights, but there are actually over 200 conventions that the Council of Europe is responsible for creating, uh, and member states, every member state is a member of the European Convention on Human Rights, but the other 200 treaties um, have various memberships, some states are members, uh, you know, most of them, and so on and so forth. Um, but these cover such a wide range of areas of human rights, things like women's rights, things, children's rights, cybercrime, cultural property, human trafficking. Um, and a lot of these treaties have monitoring bodies, which are groups made up of experts who monitor the implementation of these conventions. So if we take the example of human trafficking and modern slavery, um, the, the monitoring body is called GRETA, the Group of Experts um, Against Human Trafficking, and it's actually headed at the moment by an Irish lady, Professor Siobhan Malali from um, NUI Galway. And they will examine the situation in various countries around human trafficking. And they will visit these countries. They'll speak to civil society representatives. They will speak to the government officials. And they will create a report setting out whether or not that country is upholding its obligations under the Convention. Um, and it will make recommendations. For example, it will examine Irish legislation and say whether or not it's sufficiently strong, whether certain bits of legislation should be changed. So it's a system of peer review, but in terms of universal periodic review. Um, but, I mean, that's just you know that's just one example. We spoke about human trafficking. These bodies exist for almost 200 treaties. So the work of the Council of Europe, it's really so widespread and so important um, that the European Convention on Human Rights and the Court is probably the most famous body. But it's by no means the only uh, work that the Council does.
2: The students Strike Back
0: This is the first podcast since the actual exam took place so I wanted to use this week's Students Strike Back to allow two of my own students, Kemke and Jonathan to reflect on their own experiences of politics and society I wanted them to think about their experience of studying the course preparing for and then actually sitting the exam
2: I think it was a great learning experience. From the time we started to the time we finished, it was kind of jumping into the unknown. We weren't really sure how it was gonna go. It was growing as a student, as well as growing with your classmates. So I think the what politics and society has taught me is how to learn by yourself, but also learn with others, especially because a lot of the course and in the essays, it's about your lived experience. So you really have to draw in what you've, you really have to draw from your knowledge of, you know, talking to people about feminism or globalization to do the best that you can do in an exam.
3: It was tough at times because stuff is always changing. it was brand new, um, especially in preparation for the exam. I was trying to look up two key thinkers, Emile Durkheim and one of the others, who by the time of the exam were no longer key thinkers, but I still thought they were. It said on the NCCA spec, it said that they were. Because on the website, they were still listed as key thinkers and they had the worksheets when current thinkers such as Marx didn't have a worksheet at the time, I believe. So it's kind of stuff like that was tricky trying to traverse what you have to do, what not to do.
2: It was the most difficult exam to prepare for. So in other subjects, you have past papers, you have exam questions and answers and different tools online. But with politics and society, you really had to dig deep. Of course, you have your teachers, but there isn't a book or the spec is very, I want to say vague because there is a lot on it. But because there's so much on it, it would be nearly impossible to learn everything perfectly. So there really had to be an element of adapting to questions that you were given in the exam
3: the exam uh i think it was okay it was it was similar to the mocks which was we were all not sure that it might be so uh it was the short questions in the document and the essays which were all fine once you're well prepared and um m- me personally i did my exam on a computer so i had to type mine so obviously this went to apply to a lot of people but just trying to particularly for the document trying to figure out how much you actually need to write per thing because obviously the line space is different and all that
2: so the exam wasn't as tricky as I thought maybe it would be but I feel like the marking of the exam is really going to be telling because the exam to me was you know it was moderate it wasn't easy but it wasn't too difficult either but that being said how they mark the exams is gonna I think it's going to be more important than the questions we're given on the exams.
0: I continued then by asking Samantha if there were any cases that had gone through the European Court of Human Rights that were particularly relevant to Ireland. And you'll see that I've left the links to some more details on those cases in the episode notes on the website, just in case you want to dig a little deeper.
1: Yeah, I mean, the European Court of Human Rights and the Council of Europe has had such an impact on Irish society in so many ways. Um, there's the case of like Aryan in Ireland, which is to do with legal aid for victims of domestic abuse. Uh, the case of Norris and um, Ireland, which a lot of people will probably be familiar with, uh, which was from David Norris. Uh, this case was heard in 1988 by the European Court. And um, David Norris brought a claim to the European Court stating that he was suffering from anxiety attacks, from depression, from any serious personal issues, after realizing that any open expression of his homosexuality could lead to criminal prosecution. And he brought this case with Mary Robinson, the, the future, at that stage, President of Ireland, as his counsel. This case had gone the whole way up to the Irish court, claiming that the criminalization of homosexuality was contrary to his human rights. But Senator Norris lost the whole way up. The Supreme Court said that it did not infringe the right to privacy. So the case came to Strasbourg, and the court in Strasbourg decided differently. It decided that he had, under Article 8, a right for his privacy and his family life to be respected, and a law that criminalized homosexuality infringed this. So then, uh, a few years later, when the judgment was delivered, the law was changed in Ireland to legalize homosexual acts uh, between consenting adults. And that is a very practical and a very concrete thing that we can point to that the European Court and the Council of Europe has changed in Irish society, and it's not just in terms of changing the actual law, which it very much did, but also in terms of changing attitudes. Um, like the fact that that case was brought to the European Court, the fact that, that conversation was started, that starts a process. That you know, if you look at the early 90s, where it leads up into 2015, to things like the marriage equality referendum, to things like full rights for. Uh, lgbti people it's really remarkable and you know the huge effect of the council of europe and the european course has my society within that sphere
0: having already heard the quote of the day and given how important active citizenship is to our course i asked samantha if she'd be able to give us a little bit more detail on the un youth delegate program that she experienced I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a few PALSAC alumni following in Samantha's footsteps in the years to come.
1: So um, the, the Youth Delegate Programme is run by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and its main aim is to involve young people in international affairs and um, in international relations. So I was very fortunate uh, a few years ago to be chosen as the Irish Youth Delegate with um, Colin O'Rourke, my co-delegate at the time. Um, where we attended then the United Nations General Assembly, the United Nations Commission on Social Development, um, and a few other events and bodies as part of the official Irish government delegation. So really, I mean, this is an incredible opportunity. It's something that opens up my my eyes to the importance of international organizations and of international cooperation, not just at the global level, but also at the local level and in terms of what we do um, in our local communities on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, we work on things like the Sustainable Development Goals, which I'm sure your students are very familiar with, um, things like UN resolutions around women's rights, around youth rights. Um, and it's really an incredible program. Um, the only requirement is that you're aged between 18 and 25 uh, and that you are um resident in Ireland. So, you know, I very much encourage all your students, um, depending on what age they are or even two or three years in the future, to look into applying to it the details are
0: all on the website. So, that just about wraps up our fourth episode. All that remains for me to do is to thank our students, Kemke and Jonathan, for their time and opinions about the exam, and to offer a very special word of thanks to our special guest, Samantha O'Brien O'Reilly, for sharing her expertise. I'm sure the students listening will have gained a far greater insight into how the Council of Europe operates and its significance in Irish life, both in our recent past and into the future. This episode has been jam-packed with details, so my best advice would be that once you've listened through fully, go back and start again with the listen-along worksheet printed out uh, in your hands and use this as an opportunity to combine your note-taking ability with building up a body of relevant fact and supporting evidence all of which will be relevant for any future exam. Once you think you have a handle on the information, you can take one of the self-correcting tests that are on the episode notes page on the website www.polsockpodcast.com. And don't forget, never take my word for it, or even Samantha's. Dig into the resources yourself and see what catches your eye. There's also one new feature on the website this time around, which you'll find in the useful links section. Now, I have never claimed that this podcast is the definitive word on any of the topics under discussion, so what I have done is to compile a list of other podcasts from a wide variety of sources that relate to specific aspects of our course. They are listed by key thinker and topic, and most have suggested suitability levels – teachers, advanced students, students – and are dependent on your ability and the time available you have. But if you stumble over any other podcasts that you think might be relevant, and that I've missed on my list, please do let me know by tweeting me at khpolsock on Twitter or via the contact page on the website. I hope you'll join us again for episode 5, where we'll be examining the institutions of the European Union itself. Until then, remember, you're not apart from society. You're a part of society. See you next time.